Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. As always, we are joined by Michael, our resident ephesiologist. And my name is Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. Michael, it is exciting to be launching out uh, episode two of our new season. And uh, this is going to be a fun one. I, I, I feel this is going to be a fun one because whether people are excited or not by the topic, they will have an opinion. And their their brains will be firing. So, Michael, what do we get to listen to today? Oh, man. You know what? Everybody has an opinion on this, it seems like, uh, anymore, and especially in, in this day and age. So we have the, the, really a privilege to listen in on a conversation between our good friend Matt Till and a friend of his, David Lee, who was for many years a pastor in the Chicagoland area. Uh, both of house churches and of a legacy church. Um, David has an MA, if I remember correctly, in theology from Wheaton College and has given some thought to the issue of uh, headship in uh, the New Testament. And so he and Matt uh, recorded a podcast, really, I think it was probably three or four years ago, but it's still so relevant um, today that I thought, boy, we need to listen to this again and make this more accessible through our listening community. And so I'm excited that uh, Matt gave us permission to use it. And uh, really even more excited that Matt is going to join us on a podcast uh, in a couple of weeks to talk about uh, th this topic. Um, again, it's an important issue. It's the whole debate between complementarianism and egalitarianism and uh, Matt and David just do a wonderful job looking at the biblical texts, as well as uh, giving some thought to what theologians have said about the topic. Yeah, I think our listeners, uh, whether you have a very firm stance or not on where you believe you are and where scripture comes, uh, this is this is a discussion. This is not a fiery shouting at each other. Um argument it's it's more along the lines of hey let's talk about these things let's look at scripture and uh let's have a conversation yeah and, and, and that's a, all a part of what we believe in terms of doing theology and community these things i don't think you know i mean in one sense let me rephrase this in one sense i appreciate people who take a stance and and uh energetically defend their position mm -hmm. Um, but what we always want to encourage, even for those who take such energetic stances on a particular position, is to be good listeners uh, to, um, and hear what the other side has to say. And and uh, and we're not I mean, we don't take a position one way or the other on this, or at least I don't. And I've said as much in the book, Ephesiology where I, I don't find the categories, well, certainly Paul wasn't complementarian or egalitarian. Did those what? He didn't put that even, in? He didn't yeah, put that in text? That's not in First Corinthians uh, 14 or First Timothy 2. 
Um, and so sometimes even the categories can be a little bit divisive, but, um, but we need to have the conversation. And, and of course, we want to, at a physiology, provide the space for those conversations. And so we will. So listeners, please enjoy this podcast um, and the conversation between Matt Till and David Lee. And we'll be back with you at the very end. My conversation today is with Dave Lee, a retired pastor, author, and writer. He holds a master's in theological studies from Wheaton College. He has served in a number of house churches and legacy churches and is a longtime advocate of biblical equality in the church, family, and society. He lives in the Chicago suburbs with his lovely wife, Dana, and is a proud grampy to three amazing grandchildren. I trust you'll benefit from this conversation. All right, Dave. Um, well, thanks for meeting with me today. It's great to be here. And uh, thanks for the cup of coffee. What's the uh, what's the kind of coffee this is I'm drinking again? Uh, this blend comes from Rwanda. Rwanda. I can't pronounce the way it's supposed to be said. <laughs> it's it's from a uh, specific roaster who's in Arizona. Yes. Yeah. And uh, what was the uh, you you brewed this? It's not a French press. It's not a stove it's called top. The Soden Soft Brew. The Soden Soft Brew. Yeah. It's really very good. smooth cup of coffee. <laughs> it is really good. It's good. Commercial placement here. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, and obviously it's not the point of our conversation today, but rather um, one that we're having this opportunity where we can sit and have a cup of coffee in your living room and uh, and do theology together, which I think is really cool. Um, we got the right fuel and we got the spirit source to get us, get us through. Yeah, amen. Amen. So we have been going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, Ephesians is a, is a powerful book to the church in Ephesus, uh, in which Paul is writing to, to and, and he's giving them such great encouragement about their state of where they've been at and where they've come from. It's a predominantly Greek audience um, and learning the ways of how to follow Jesus. And this other project I happen to be working on, which is Ephesiology, you know a little bit about, uh, is actually doing a lot of study in this concept of really the early Christian movement comes from, and it really originates out of Ephesians or out of the out of Ephesus, and really became a, a key place for the Apostle Paul. And we get a lot of things in Ephesians, and I come out of a Reformed, um, Baptistic kind of backdrop. Um, Me too. And and so what we've heard is we we get into Ephesians. And our, we're always like, man, there's the, the doctrine of predestination and there's the doctrine of, uh, you know, by faith alone, by grace alone. Uh, those, those kind of reformed, you know, ideas are like, man, let's go to Ephesians. That's where we see that at. Um, and uh, not to say that we can't mine those kind of play, mine the, the scriptures out of here, but there's some other really important themes in Ephesians, isn't there? Exactly. Um, Calvinists do find a lot of confirmation bias <laughs> in Ephesians. Um, I know because that was my upbringing as well. Yeah. And uh, I think we can find all five points in Ephesians. Maybe not. That's our quick point. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I've met 10 point Calvinists. <laughs> And I'm sure they find even more in there. So. Right, right. Well, one of the things that Ephesians, I think, does, and this is the series that we've been going through, is this idea of oneness and unity. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, really important that comes out of here actually is actually a very important debate 
um, on a single Greek word, mm-hmm. which is really kind of frustrating at some times, but um, mm-hmm. has really become a major issue uh, or a major thing in which we need to talk about, which is the reason why we're having this conversation today. Right. Um, because as we start getting into Ephesians uh, further, uh, we're going to get to the key passages of like Ephesians 5 um, and where we start to, uh, Paul is talking about the family and he's talking about the nature of the church and the body of Christ. But early in Ephesians chapter one, we get introduced to this idea um, in uh, specifically verse one, the last verse in chapter one, uh, verse 22. And it says this, and he, this is the ESV reading, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And then verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Correct. This passage is talking about Jesus, right? And uh, talking about the Lord who put all things under his, meaning Christ's feet, and gave him, Jesus, as the head. And here's the, here's the word that we have to talk about is head mm-hmm. over all things to the church. Uh, there's been a lot of debate on this, this word head, isn't it? And the, um, the Greek word there is kephale, or as we've perhaps just recently found out, maybe we've been pronouncing it wrong. Kephale. Kephale, perhaps. Kephale. Kephale. Um, and uh, give us some some background. Actually, I'll just tell you from this perspective, uh, most often we've heard this idea of this word head has been one of, is often translated as perhaps one of authority, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so we've come to understand the word head means, well, at least in the Greek sense of what this, the context always seems like, well, this is the, the head, the, uh, the figure head, the authority figure, um, the one who, um, perhaps is, has the rule. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that actually turns out may not necessarily be the case as you and I have been discussing offline and we've been having these discussions for quite some time, right. which is why we're recording this today, just to kind of get some people to kind of get a little insight onto this. That's right. Um, when, when you're looking at this text in the Greek, and we don't want to get too involved in Greek because neither one of us are Greek scholars, <laughs> but, and most of our listeners are not Greek scholars. That's right. But from what I have read of Greek scholarship, um, kephale, uh, while it's translated literally head, um, the problem isn't with that word in the Greek as much as it is how we make, we import English assumptions to the meaning head. So uh, in French and German, for example, head does not mean leader or authority. Um, And in English, when we hear the word head, we do think of someone who's in charge of something. And he's the... He's my head coach. He's the... He's the head of the department. That's right. He's the head or lead pastor. Or he's the head of the family, <laughs> or right? The or the, the family, head of right. the wife, and so on. Right. So we we see in English, we read in things that where the scholars have said, let's not be so hasty to assume that our English meaning is what belongs with that word. Uh, we wouldn't have done that if we were German or French. Right. So why why are we just assuming that Greek and English are functioning the same way? Yeah. And this is like huge because we, we always, I mean, we're, I think we're constantly battling against this, aren't we? When we read scripture, you pick up a piece of scripture, you pick up a piece of scripture, right? As if we're reading parchment paper, right? (laughs) We we pick up the word, we open it up, you read a Psalm and you're like, oh, that so speaks to me. Right. Which is like, great. It totally can. Right. And it does. It should. Mm -hmm. It's the living and active word of God. Right. 
Um, but the interpretation, we're always coming at it from our place in the year 2019 as we're recording this, right? Um, and we look at it from 2019 lens and our limited perspective of, for me, the 37 years I've been on this earth. And so I take my experiences and my culture and I simply just read back into it, assuming that what was written 2000 years ago, which by the way, was written in a completely different language that I don't even speak, right? Okay. It has been translated, you know, uh, down the road a little bit to try to export its meaning out that all of a sudden we have to realize, oh, wait a minute, I need to go back and I have to get my mind in my, my heart, even in that, I got to get into the heads of not only the author, if that's right. even possible, but the audience as well. Sure. Sure. So we have a word that, um, is typically, it typically occurs in contexts where Paul is discussing leadership, um, or male the male role in the family and so on. Yep. And it also occurs in the context of talking about Jesus, who is our Lord and our authority. Yeah. So nobody in questioning the meaning of kephale um, is questioning whether or not Jesus is Lord. They're just questioning whether or not this word is trying to describe that. Yeah. Or is it trying to address our concept of what a leader is and turn it upside down by making Christ the example yeah. of what a kefale is and how it should function. Yeah, that's a helpful distinction that you just gave us there. And because that is, you're right, nobody's disputing that kefale doesn't mean head. It does. Right. It Like when we translate the word, it's head. Yes. Right. So That's we're not saying yeah, we're not we're not trying to suggest that it has any other necessarily intrinsic like word meaning to translating mm -hmm. to 2019 is that kafale in ancient Greek means our English word is uh, synonymous with our English word of head. Right. Right. The question is, how did the head function in the Greek way of thinking, thinking. about the body right. and life? Um, often they saw other parts of the body functioning ways you and I would not think of them. For example, uh, when you look at the, the little letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, he literally says to Philemon that Philemon has been um, you know, known to refresh the bowels of the saints. And we would not use that expression today. We would say he's, he's always refreshed our hearts or he's refreshed our spirits or our soul. But they saw the bowels as a, functioning in a very different way than, yeah. than we might. And I've often said with friends like Philemon, who needs enemas, you know, because he refreshes the bowels. But uh, when... When we look at the word head and how it relates to the body and how Greeks saw the kephale's purpose in human anatomy, um, they would have seen much of the thinking and much of the decision-making coming from the heart or from other parts of maybe the liver or whatever. But um, the head played a very different role in, yeah. the, in the anatomy in that it was a supplier of source and unity and animation to the body. We, you know, we're trying, to, we're trying to see where Paul may have had some other nuances to the word than what we would have in English. Um, so at the end of the day, the implications for this uh, are potentially quite huge, especially coming out of 
uh, a Reformed theology, Baptistic background, um, uh, evangelical broadly. Right. Um, because what this does is that the reason why this becomes the issue of how do we interpret and understand how perhaps the Greeks, how Paul uh, right. used the word, you know, that's most importantly, author, authorial intent, right? right? What was the intent of the author in which the author was trying to portray, right? That's exactly. always what we want to understand. Exactly. So what was Paul trying to portray to his audience in understanding by using the word head? Because that right there is then what we're going to understand. Then we can begin to interpret, well, what does he even mean when Jesus is head, right, right. Um, of the church or he's head over all things or over all authorities, right? right? And then on top of that, we get into the text in Ephesians 5. Well, if Christ is head of the church and then also men, your husbands are to be head of their wives just right. as Christ is head of the church, right? Is how the phrase is exactly. how it goes. So all of a sudden... If we're having this issue of this talking about this, uh, of the understanding of head, we, if we're always thinking authority, then all of a sudden we just simply just say, well, okay, well, I've replaced the word head with authority, boss, yeah. right? And it's like, okay, so husband is boss over wife, right? Yeah, if I'm just yeah. using crass terms right now. Okay. And then just as Christ is boss over the church, right? Right. So if kefale meant boss or um, authority authority over the more so on, word. <laughs> then most of what Paul wrote about the family would have been unnecessary for him to write. Because in Roman times, that was the assumption that the man was the boss. Yes. And um, when you look at Ephesians 5, I don't want to get us too far ahead of this, but uh, Ephesians 5 describes a Roman family, and it includes slaves. And there's a master, and there are servants. And... If we are going to say that that is God's design for the family, mm -hmm. then we have a problem because slaves would be his design. And we know that our evangelical forebears, uh, the abolitionists, uh, were able to find in Scripture, without questioning the authority of Scripture, they were able to find the basis for overthrowing slavery. And it took them... 1,600 years after Christ to get there, <laughs> uh, 1,700 perhaps, well, uh, no, 1,800 years. years. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but then again, it took, it took the Protestants uh, until the 1,400s, 1,500s to discover justification by faith, to recover it, restore it if we're going to be restorationists. Thank you. Thank you. So... Um, <laughs> so we know that, for example, the word master... We don't have to debate the meaning of the word master. Right. It means boss. Yeah. But what does Paul say to the master? He says the, that the master is to take Christ's example and to treat the servants humanely, remembering that he is a master. Yeah. And when we see him talking to the husbands, he doesn't have to tell them they're the bosses. That's the cultural assumption. Yeah. He says to them, look, you want to see what a, what, what a master is? You want to see what a head is? You want to see what a husband is? You have to look to Christ. Yeah. And his example was to wash and cleanse and purify his bride and treat her as if she was his own body and to love her and nourish her. And that's the context where kefali occurs. Yeah. Yeah, he's the Lord. No question there. 
Yeah, they were masters. Yeah, yeah, the culture placed authority on the position of husband. But the paradigm of Jesus flips authority. And it goes back to a, that verse that you and I have talked about in the past. We look at Matthew 20, 25. It occurs in all of the synoptic gospels. And it, there's an example of it in, in the gospel of John lived out in Christ washing his disciples' feet. That's where I was just going to go. I mean, yep. we think about it in, I mean, we have a, the supreme ruler, if I can use that right phrase, uh-huh. of all creation. Yes. Of, of the heavens and the earth mm-hmm. and all things in between. The things seen and the things unseen. Mm-hmm. Gets down on his knees. Exactly. And he washes the feet of his disciples. And I would even argue, we see it in this passage, that he does this prior to Judas leaving the room. Judas yeah. was the betrayer. Exactly. And he doesn't show any partiality to him. Yes. Right? So, you know, and we, we tend to tell that story. We tend to preach that story. It's like, look at how much Jesus has loved us, which is yes and amen, right? Yeah. But we don't, but we don't necessarily draw that line to what is the example or picture of proper authority, right? Exactly. Um, as so we see that played out, I guess, in the church. Now, one of the things that I think comes up often in this in this conversation now is this idea of when we look at well, how was you know kefle used, and we we and how was it really? You know, are we just twisting things or whatever? And you know, our the evangelical hero Wayne Grudem. Okay. Uh, right, um, who's written the big monster blue systematic theology I call book. It the Grudemus, or the uh, Grudemus Maximus. The Grudemus Maximus. Well done. <laughs> well done. Right. Uh, Wayne Grudem uh, took issue with this as this began to kind of percolate up into yeah. evangelicalism, right? Yeah. And uh, he was quick to, um, it sounds like well, he did quite an exhaustive study on it, actually. Um, it's and, been the mark of his career, apparently, that to try to prove that Kefwe means uh, author- head in the authoritarian sense. Right, right. And to me, this is a wasted life. It's like trying to prove that master means master. I mean, it, it, it's irrelevant to what we understand the role of leaders and authority to be. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the whole point of halfway in uh, in the Ephesian letter is to show that Christ has overcome the authorities he's he's the one who has subjugated all rule and authority and dominion and he's become their head meaning he he is their source there they depend upon him now because he is the one who's unified all things under yeah. himself so we should probably talk about that and kind of put some new terms maybe down. Mm-hmm. As we're starting to kind of unpack this, I guess, mm-hmm. we should probably talk about the terms. Okay. And and so there is a real word for authority yes. and um, in scripture. And, a lot of them. Yeah. But the one that mean the one that is also translated head in the authority sense yep. is arche. Arche. All right. So the the arche is um, a word that appears a lot in Ephesians, never of a husband. And uh, it is, in some ways, seems to be set opposed to Christ because Christ is the one who is, comes up and he is seated above all rule and authority, mm-hmm. all arche and exousia. And that is where we ended up seated with him in the heavens. 
yeah. above all those things. Yeah. So, and then therefore, there is this other side of Kefle that says, yes, head is correct, but perhaps we need to be thinking about it in terms of rather than it being authoritarian, authoritarian, right? Rather is one who is in which life and source comes from. You know what yeah. I think about? Um, the illustration that I, I, I often think of is um, I'm, a, I'm a believer in chiropractic care. Some okay. people think I'm crazy. Uh, and most doctors think chiropractors are nuts. Um, but all to say is there's one thing that there's a science to which they subscribe to that nobody disputes. Right. And that is every, every function of your body is, is designed and is equipped and empowered through the central nervous system. Yes. And the source of the central nervous system is what? The head. The head. It's the right. brain. And actually, I found this out when we were starting to have children, is that the very first organ to form is not the heart, but the brain and its stems and its and its stems or the uh, the the brain stem, right, right, right. Because it is from there to which at that point in that embryonic stage in the first few weeks that the 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 brain is the infrastructure to which all things flow out of. That's right, right. And this is the foundation to chiropractic care is that when you go to see your chiropractor, they're always about trying to align your spine so that your central nervous system can do its job and empower every part of your limb and every organ in your body. That's a beautiful illustration, and it's it's exactly what Paul is driving at in the whole book of Ephesians. You know, he starts off in the first chapter, chapter 10, talking about how all things are summed up in Christ as the head. Yeah. It's from him that mm -hmm. we, we gain our growth, we gain our life, uh, we have our unity. Uh, and so getting our spine aligned with Christ. Yes. It's a personal matter and it's a corporate matter. Yeah. As congregations and as the broader body of Christ. Uh, this is the source of our disunity, yeah. is that we are connecting to everything but Christ. Now, <laughs> so many people are like, they're connected to their, their megachurch pastor, or they're connected to some doctrine or denomination, or they're connected to all these various ways of looking at um, the world. And some will even try to moot or, or soften Christ's teachings by going to the Old Testament or by going to Paul right. and kind of wa kind of watering it down with those other elements so that Christ's pungent message gets a little more palatable and it turns out that we're all okay after all. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, and it's basically what a Pharisee would do. Yeah. Go to the yeah. Old Testament and put Moses up against Jesus. Yeah. Which the whole book of Galatians is the complete right. removal of that that kind of paradigm, right. you know. And to continue on this this analogy of uh, the chiropractic, the care, the the mm -hmm. source, right? Uh, in Greek thought, uh, I guess they were kind of, uh, you know, and I'm I'm forgive me, I'm not as well up on this, but I know that I have read this that you know the Greeks were really uh, very advanced for their time. Yep. Uh, they understood the human body. They understood some sense of medicine and how to treat the body. And they would have known and they were actually practicing in such a way that the, this platonic ideas. I mean, Plato was like, let's get to the mind. 
Let's let us affect the mind. We can affect the heart and, and the rest of the person, right? right? Right. In its most simplest form, it was like this is where we get our our ideas of of, of education right. come from. It's like well, let's let's affect the mind. Let's talk to the mind. Exactly. Um, Paul, again, if we need to go outside of this, um, I, to me, this is one of the most convincing arguments. Despite getting in, onto the nitty gritty of the Greek, like to yeah. me, it's like let's look at the contextual stuff, and this is what you and I keep talking about, right. and we have to keep uncovering all these things because I'm like, okay, well, what about this? What about about this yep. well Paul in first Corinthians so now he writes a letter to to Corinth yeah. right first Corinthians yeah. 12 he's talking uh, the human body has many parts but the many parts make up one whole body so it is with the body of Christ and some of us are Jews some are Gentiles some are slaves some are free yeah. right yeah. but we all have been baptized into one body by one spirit and we share the same spirit right as the body has many parts and we can't just say the foot is not part of the body, you know, and because and, I'm not a hand and the hand can't say that about the rest of the body. And the ear can't say I want out. Right. But instead, it's, he's talking about this unity. Right. But we all have one body and he gets on to the part where obviously if the body, if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And it's this idea that but we have one head. Yeah. Who is that head? Christ, Christ himself. himself right? right. To which all the body parts function together. In unity, right. exactly. in oneness from our source. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and to me, I'm like, okay, here's another letter from Paul. He's not using, I, I don't, actually, forgive me, I can't remember if he actually uses the word head um, in in this particular uh, context, but I, I, I don't see how we can't draw the line. Right? Right. He's using the same kind of idea here. Right. So with a body, if you chop off your arm, it no longer functions. Right. All right. Um, it's if not you, if you chop off your head, nothing on the body functions, right? But you, if you chop off just an arm, all the rest of your limbs function because they're still connected to the head. Yeah. So this is what uh, this is where we draw our life. This is where we draw our unity. Yeah. Uh, and this is where the church tends to wander is when they take their eyes off Christ and His teachings. Mm-hmm. We love to celebrate the cross, that he's paid the, the debt, that we're no longer going to suffer for our sins. Jesus, that's the great gospel message that by faith in Christ, we're now free from sin. Yes. When it comes to his teachings, his headship, his rule, if you want to go into the authority paradigm, yep. um, we we all come up short. Yeah. I, I come up short. Yeah. And... Um, it is so much easier sometimes to be able to say, well, yeah, Jesus said turn the other cheek, but it also says eye for eye. And if I do eye for an eye, I'm still keeping the law, you know. <laughs> and uh, so how do we become truly united with Christ in life and in practice? How do we really treat him as the way, yeah. the truth and the life? Yeah. So getting back to the the Kefali question, yep. uh, and you mentioned Dr. Grudem and uh, this whole thing uh, kind of came to a head in the mid 1980s. That, that was a literally the, or figuratively. To a head. <laughs> Am I saying it came to an authority? No, it didn't. Um, it came to a point of. Um, 
came, it, it came to a, a climax. And and actually, just as an object lesson, yeah. this is exactly why this is this conversation becomes difficult. Is because we, even in the English language, we have so many different words. Yes. We use the same word for different meanings. Right. Context uh, has to determine the meaning. Exactly. And so what happened in the mid-1980s at the Evangelical Theological Society, um, there were theologians who all presented papers on the question of kefale. And uh, Dr. Bill Zekian was one. Dr. Uh, Catherine Clark Krager was another. And uh, there, there were some other names that I won't, I won't clog, clog us all up with. But Dr. Grudem had presented a paper in which he cited something like 40 sources, 40, give or take, five or six. I, I don't remember the actual number. But... Uh, they came from classical Greek literature, which is interesting because the New Testament is Koine Greek. It'd kind of be like making an argument based on King James English as opposed to modern-day English. <laughs> yeah. But he cited classical Greek. He cited the Septuagint, which is an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is helpful because the word in Hebrew was Rosh, and wherever Rosh was appeared in Hebrew, the Septuagint had a Greek rendering of it. Depending upon the context, they used different Greek words, sometimes kephale. Yeah. And then uh, he gave New Testament references. And he claimed in each case, kephale meant authority. Dr. Bilzikin came in, presents a paper, takes every single example, notes the context, and notes how the Greek functioned mm -hmm. and says the opposite. He says, in every one of these examples, it's clear that authority is not in view. Dr. Muzikin, just uh, he's a Wheaton, uh, a Wheaton, Wheaton professor of the New Testament. Yep. And um, Just for everyone who's listening. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And he's an author of many books. So yep. um, he what, what came out of that conference was, uh, those who were on Grudem's side started an organization called the Council for Biblical Man and Woman, Man, Manhood Man and Womanhood. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and those who were on Dr. Bilsiki and Dr. Krager's side uh, started Christians for Biblical Equality. And some of those who sided with Bilsiki and were people like Kenneth Cancer, who has a building named after him over at Trinity. Uh, you had a number of other Trinity professors, Wheaton professors, uh, some very famous. Scholars, uh, I. Howard Marshall, um, and others like them. And since that time, there's been this these two camps, the egalitarians who side with, sided with Dr. Bilzekian's paper and the uh, complementarians, complementarians yeah. who stole the name from people who were egalitarian. Originally, complementarian meant both parts had equal to contribute. Let, let's but, just yeah. real quick. Let's just real yeah. quick take a quick side just to de yeah. define these terms. Yeah. Because and actually, I have read. There's actually probably three camps, right? Okay. There's the traditionalists. Yep. Uh, that would that would suggest, and we're not talking about generational traditionalists, but we're actually somebody who is a traditionalist, where it is a women have no say. They are a true patriarchy yes. uh, kind of a right. Uh, the patriarchalist. The patriarchalist. Is the best way to describe that. Yeah. yeah. Good. 
The second one, so like women are not permitted to speak in church. The husband is truly the authority figure of the entire household. The complementarian view, which is the most popular um, and has been most prevalent in evangelical churches, is the one to which uh, men and women work together, but there is still a hierarchical um, approach, especially when it comes to leadership. It's a gender hierarchy. Gender hierarchy, yes. And that is uh, specifically even within the church context and even at home. Right. And then there's the egalitarian view. You, which uh, would just would simply say like it's we're, we're all one. There is no hierarchy. No hierarchy. It's not that we are all the same. Yeah. I mean, we value the differences between men and women. Yeah. We celebrate it. <laughs> we have kids together. We yes. do things. We yes. do life together. I do celebrate the differences between my wife and I. <laughs> and well, you should. But um, the uh, the idea with the egalitarianism is that we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Yeah. That when Paul said, treat one another as more important than yourself, he wasn't just talking to the men or just telling the women to do that to the men. It was it was a mutual, e- equal proposition. Yeah. And the idea of authority is going to function differently in each of those groups. Mm. So Paul was clearly speaking to a patriarchal culture. Yeah. In Ephesians. And that's important for us to note is that the mm-hmm. the context and the background to much of what we read in Scripture was, in fact, patriarchy. Yes. Right? Yes. And this even goes, we have saw this very heavily even in the Old Testament and continued into the New Testament um, and even in Greek culture. Even as progressive as they were, yeah. they were still very domineering of a patriarchy context. And just because the patriarch, just because that was the context to the culture— doesn't necessarily mean that that is exactly what God's plan or design is, right? Correct. So um, when we talk about, you're telling me there's three camps. When I when I read a complementarian, I, I still see them as a traditionalist mm-hmm. because I hear people like Grudem and Piper yep. saying John thing, Piper, John yeah. Piper, saying things like um, that there are God-given gender roles. Yeah. The Bible never speaks of roles. The idea of a role is a, is a modern concept. Uh, so they import this modern concept of roles into the New Testament, and they attach gender to it. Well, and, and that is where we find ourselves, actually, mm-hmm. is I imagine many people who are listening to this right now are all of a sudden, like, the whole apple cart is being is being shaken and turned upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is truly paradigm shifting, and actually, uh, honestly, has been for me. As you and I have discussed, and I've been having these conversations with others um, uh, for a number of years, that uh, I have been on a journey. And that right. journey involves reading scripture and reconciling these these things of which I'm, I'm seeing and then also recognizing in the culture around me that goes, there's some things that just seem a little bit more Jesus-like than, yeah. I mean, if I were just to take the most simpleton approach, like let's just mm-hmm. remove the... The theological heady seminarians out of our out of us just for a minute and right. go. If I saw Jesus of the New Testament walking in this world, what would he be saying to us today, even inside our own churches? Right. And what is what is it that's happening outside of our churches? We've got this Me Too movement um, that that has really shaken the world a little bit, I, not a little bit, but quite a bit. Um, yeah. But it's it's evidential of of sin, and yet we, the church, look at that and go, yeah. That's right. We got to bring these monsters down. But yet we look at our own stuff and go, but what do we propagate? And look what's happening even internally in the church that we have the same issue taking place. 
And so these are things that like, I think that the Lord is using in, in not just my life. And I got to imagine those who are listening to this are thinking those same things and having troubles reconciling them too. And that's really been the heartbeat behind this is like, I want to, I'm at the point where I want to invite people on the journey with us and, and, and help people just kind of process these things aloud. But let's go back to the scripture for a moment, because what you raised is really important is this idea of gender roles. And I already mentioned first Corinthians. So Paul is up at Paul's the problem. I'm just going to put all this on Paul. Okay. Um, actually, we'll probably say that we're the problem. But like when we read Paul, this is where we start running into issues is because all of a sudden Paul's like, okay, he meant head. He meant source. Uh, Galatians, actually. Um, Galatians, was it? 323? 328. 328. Thank you. And it is, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female nor slave or free. Right. We are all one in Christ. Right. right. right? And so you've got statements like this that are like, it, like you said, it, the ground is level at the cross, right? Yeah. And then I get to 1 Corinthians, I go back to 1 Corinthians 11, yeah. and I'm just going to read part of it for us. Sure. And I know you've got some thoughts on this, because okay. I want you to help me re- remind me of all the, of your, of where you see this from and where, what you've learned. But right. now I command you, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Okay. Uh, he's talking about uh, instructions for like public worship. Yeah. Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head, here's the word head again, of every man is Christ. Got it. The head of a wife is her husband. Yeah. And the head of Christ is God. Exactly. And um, we we have historically have read this, at least in a complementarian view, that, uh, and I, I want you to respond, but I'm going to just continue just for a second and then yeah, I want you to sure. respond to it. But this, this idea that the head of a man is Christ. Oh, Christ is our authority, right? Yeah, yeah. And therefore the authority of a wife is the husband, right? Yeah. And of course the head of Christ is God. So we've got this, we've got this weird like dichotomy thing that Paul's that's saying, right? And so what we do is we simply go, okay, so if I read this properly, if I was in a hierarchical standpoint, I've yeah. got God as the head or authority, if I'm yeah. reading it in that context, yeah. God is the authority of Christ, Christ is the authority of man, and man is the authority of the wife. And yet, this is where, this is where my moment, this is where my, like, my bells started going off, because yeah. I kept reading. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I kept reading the passage, and I go, okay, I've heard this before, because every time I've heard this passage preached, this is what we talk about. But right. then we kept reading. And then he says, verse four, but every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. I don't know why that the point is, but then every wife who yeah. prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. The, 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 the hypocrisy of what we do in the church became a major problem for me. Yeah. And what we've said historically has been, oh, that's cultural. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we, we make the cultural argument like, yeah. oh, well, it was cultural for the woman to have, you know, Palestinian, which this isn't even Palestine, it's Corinth. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right? That's right. So, so like, you know, we, we, we've taken the Palestinian uh, Israel um, kind of motif and we imported it all the way to Asia, yeah. right? Or Asia Minor and into, into Greek culture, Roman culture and said, oh, the women, we used to wear these veils all the time. Yeah. Probably not, but we've said that, oh, that's cultural for the time. And so because it was cultural, we can exclude that from us today, but everything else counts. And I go, wait a minute, we can't just have one and not the other. So there's a, there's a problem here. And this is actually where the issue started with me. Okay. As I started looking here and I go, something doesn't, something's not lining up here. This is a great passage to discuss. And it's a great example of why kefale cannot mean authority. In, I mean, you, you say Paul's a problem. To me, Paul's who convinced me to be a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So 
When I read this passage, I notice things like the fact that the people who want to take one part literally don't want to take the other part literally. You know, I don't see women having to, to, to submit to that kind of thing. Right. And conversely, the purpose of the veil was a symbol of authority, not a symbol of submission like the old King James said. It, if you read it, it's a yeah. symbol of authority. It's like if I put a police officer's hat on, I have a symbol of authority on my head. All right. So what was that authority to do? That's a helpful distinction, by the way. And just in case somebody missed it, what you're saying is just like a police officer puts on the police hat, right? Uh, The the sheriff puts on his his hat or the 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 state trooper, right? Whatever symbol of authority they put on themselves. The fireman puts on his his helmet. That is the sign of the authority that has been given to him. To perform a function. To perform that function, yeah. And what is the function she is to perform but to prophesy? Pray and prophesy. Pray and prophesy. Now, this is the letter, same letter where we get the idea that women are supposed to stay silent. I was well, going to get that. Get, how do you get from staying silent to being given a symbol of authority so you can prophesy? In the same text, yeah. In the congregation. Yeah. And when you um, when you look at this, and he makes some reference to the angels, and nobody knows what that means. We speculate. <laughs> All right. What, what do the angels have to do with it? She is given a symbol of authority to prophesy. And when you look at, when Paul mentions the spiritual gifts or the offices of the church, it's apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and um, what's the last one? Uh, Evangelists. evangelists, So when you look at the the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, he says, not all apostles, not all prophets, not all. He goes down this list again. There is, God has given first apostles, then he's given prophets and so on. So if women have the authority on their head to prophesy, and they're just under the apostles, all right, they're over the pastors in those lists. In that list, if that is a hierarchical list. If it's a hierarchical list. Suddenly the hierarchicalists don't want it to be hierarchy. Right. But when they look at, at 1 Corinthians 11, they see this description of the man and woman relationship, the God and Christ relationship, and the Christ and every person relationship, because that word for man can mean every person. Yeah. And somehow that's a hierarchy. Yeah. And it's not written as a hierarchy. Yeah. In fact, what hmm. you have is these groupings where um, it is, let me just uh, pull this forward here. We've, if, if you could see us, we didn't record this with video, but yeah. we're like, you know, Dave and I have got like our Bibles out. I got my iPad <laughs> up. He's got like papers shown about. We're got like, my Greek New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> um, as, we, as we look at these groupings, it's Christ, every person, husband, wife, God, and Christ. Now, and that's the order in which he that's writes the order this in which here. it happens. Yeah, correct, and yeah. Christ is the first one mentioned and the last. If it was a hierarchy, it would be God. Christ, husband, wife, kids, dog, cat, mouse, all the way down, right? But it's not a hierarchy. It starts with Christ and it ends with Christ. And the coupling is Christ and every man or possibly rendered every person based upon that Greek word. Um, Christ is the head of every person. The husband is the head of the wife and God is the head of Christ. As an aside, whatever headship means, no mention here of church leaders. I never will see that you will never see the word kephale in the context of church leadership. But here we have this coupling, this unity, this uh, this person of Christ who became human and 
uh, joined us in our humanity, and now we have this unbreakable connection like the head to the body. Husband and wife, the two become one flesh. You have God and you have Christ again at the end. So uh, God is the head of Christ. Now, if God being the head of Christ means that God is the authority of Christ, does that mean that Christ has less authority than the Father? That would be to make him less than God. Uh, we believe as Orthodox Christian believers, uh, as reform, if you're Reformed, it's written right into the, the, the creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are completely equal in every aspect. Um, in fact, you can go back to uh, the, uh, the great creeds like the Athanasian Creed, where it says, in this Trinity, there's nothing before or after, nothing greater or less, but all three persons are co-eternal and with each other co-equal. You can look at the Second Helvetic Confession, which is a 16th century Reformed uh, confession. It says uh, that there are not three gods, but three persons, consubstantial, co-eternal, distinct with respect to hypostasis. We'll get, we'll skip those definitions yeah. for now. And uh, they are distinct from each other. And with respect to order, the one proceeding, preceding the other, yet without any inequality. For according to the nature or essence, so they are joined together, they are one God, and the divine nature is common in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, we condemn all heresies and heretics <laughs> who teach that there is something created and subservient or subordinate to one another, to another in the Trinity, and that there is something unequal in it, a greater or a less. So this goes back centuries in the church to understanding that there is no subordination within the Trinity. There is a mutual respect, a mutual submission that goes on between the Father and the Son, where Jesus is able to say, all that is mine is thine, all that is thine is mine, and they even share in the Father's glory together, something that in the Old Testament God said he would never share with anybody. So Christ and the Father are equal in authority, otherwise one of them isn't God. Whoever's not the equal, whoever's the lesser, is not equally God. Which, obviously, this ties really, this is an important distinction and why that, the doctrine of the Trinity is so foundational to so many of our theologies. Right. And really to our theology as a whole. But also here, I guess, into 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, is because we're reading often that the head of Christ is God. So what you're saying is that we can't read the word head as authority in that. So what is the text actually saying then? It's saying that Christ came from the Father and that the Father and the Son are united, mm. that they are like head and body. They are not in the authority sense, but in the sense that one proceeds from the other. Which then, that I guess would inform then, mm -hmm. earlier in verse 3, mm -hmm. the head of every man is Christ. Mm -hmm. So that would suggest that what? We look to, the, to Christ for our sustenance, for our life. Yeah. That we look to him uh, to unify us as individuals and as a body. We are one with Christ 
And the source of every man is, is Christ. The source of every right? person is Christ. That. Yeah. That, and the word man there is actually, we're referring to the male, not actually brothers, uh, if, if I recall, right? Is that the Greek word? Because so there is. Here's the thing you have to remember about Greek and Hebrew and many ancient languages. The rule is if you're referring to a room full of people, and if there's 90 women and one man, you must refer to that group in terms of how the language works, you refer to that group in the masculine. That's the way the language works. And it's not, therefore, the teaching that when you refer to a group in the masculine, that you are somehow uh, making the man um, of higher importance, other than that's, what the that's the way the language has to work. And you'll see that throughout the scripture when, when they talk about elders. It, the assumption is masculine language must mean masculine people, not necessarily so, because there could be 90 women in that being referred to, but the one man changes it to a masculine discussion. Hmm. So it's more of an accident of language than it is the intent of the author to uh, exclude one group or the other. Yeah, and that's a complicated, I mean, what, what you just explained is very simple, yeah. but that is a very complicated, like, undoing of the language of, like, trying to interpret that properly. Well, yeah, if we say, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, does that mean the women aren't included? If we say right. all men are sinners, are the women off the hook? <laughs> you know, so if that, this is how the language works. Yeah. That's the way English worked for a long time. Right. And those who want to be selective about when it can mean just one gender or the other are really, the onus is on them to really prove why. So let's talk about that, that other part in verse three then. Uh, we kind of talked about the first mm -hmm. and the last part, but then mm -hmm. he says, the head of a wife is her husband. Right. So let's look at how the rest of the context here talks about what Paul just said, because he's going to explain it, right? And he goes on to talk about how um, if you look in, if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12, you have Paul talking about, um, nevertheless, neither the woman without the man, nor the man without the woman. I'm sorry, I'm reading the, uh, the literal aspect here. Let me go to one of the translations. In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, New American Standard, mm -hmm. nor is man independent of woman. Mm -hmm. For as the woman originates from man, source. Yeah, so the argument here typically has been uh, that we, this is a, this is a callback to Genesis. Yep. God first made the man, yep. and then out of the man, the rib was taken, and woman yep. was then made, right? Yep. And and so if we look at the Garden of Eden as being the only picture which we have of the first two chapters of the entire book of, of yep. the Bible, that is the picture of humanity before the fall, and the yep. rest of the picture of the scripture is uh, God's redemptive plan for humanity, as well right. as uh, you know the allusions and the prophecies of the of the of the humanity and the world to come, right? right. But so we're looking. Looking at that by saying, well, here's the ideal picture. There was yeah. there was God, and then there was Adam, and then, by the way, Adam needed a helper, and so we made Eve, right? Yeah. And then now we're interpreting. So that's usually how we're. This is typically how so we, we read it. So yeah. So we have this dialogue going on here in First Corinthians. Scholars say that uh, we because they didn't have quotation marks and all this kind of stuff back then. Some of these statements in this chapter could be understood as the Corinthians claims. 
and then Paul's response to those claims. So this is a chapter about order in the service, and the order establishes that the women are to have authority on their head to prophesy. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned before, prophecy, whenever it shows up in the lists, shows up right under apostleship and above being a pastor, above being a teacher, and so on. People don't want to always they say, well, maybe it's not. he's not giving a hierarchy. The, that's where it's clearly a hierarchy because it's in an order that shows up everywhere. Whenever it shows up, it's got that same kind of order to it. In this passage, we have things coupled, jumbled. There's no, there's no intent to try to make a hierarchy. But in verse 12, as he's trying to explain the, what kephale means, all right? The context leads him to say, what, what, the context comes in here that it says, for as woman originates from man, so man is the source of woman, so also man has his birth through woman. So in nature, yeah, um, there was the origin of woman that came from man, but now in nature, we all had mothers. We all have a mother, a woman as our source. And all th- then he says, and all things originate from God. So that's where he goes, so judge for yourself. Is it right for a woman to, to pray with her head uncovered and so on? Um, for as woman came from man, so man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. And, and as you go further down, the idea that comes through here is um, that what matters is not what happened in the original creation. It's not what matters in in daily life of nature and how uh, men come from women, but what matters is what happens in the Lord. In the Lord, he says, um, we're not independent of each other. Verse 11, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man nor is man independent of woman. So here is the description of the, how Kefwe is applied. It applies in that we all can claim to be each other's source. What matters isn't na- in the natural world, we're in the fallen world. What matters is what are we in Christ? And in Christ, we're all the same. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. We no longer judge each other according to the flesh, it says in, in 2 Corinthians I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, if anyone is in Christ, uh, he's a new creation. We, we used to judge each other according to the flesh, but now we judge them thus no longer. You've got um, this use of kephale, which cannot mean that Christ is less than the Father. And it cannot mean that if you have a kephale, you can't minister. Otherwise, Christ couldn't minister. Mm-hmm. Men couldn't minister. Uh and it doesn't address the marriage relationship here. Is I mean, the context is talking about church life. So it's not he's not trying to teach us about family or marriage. Mm. Rather, he's taking an example from marriage, which turns out to be what matters is, is how we are in the Lord. And that then gets transferred over into the church, that women have authority to prophesy. It, it seems like, and again, I, I, when we start thinking about it in regards to this, this idea of source, again, uh, this is the, the place to which, you know, the whole central nervous system comes from, right, is, is in order for 
for that to occur, it's, it is all wrapped up in and goes back to our conversation in Ephesians 1 and what we see is constantly played out in Ephesians. Yeah. And that is Christ is our source. Right. Right. And and therefore, and through Christ, God is our source. Right. And therefore, it's we've all tapped into the source. We've all received the fullness of the source. Exactly. Right. Um, and that is the source of our source. Right. Yeah. And now I appreciate the, you know, we're talking about anatomy. We have to be careful not to import too much of a 21st century understanding of anatomy Agreed. into the first century text. But we can look at how the first century thought in terms of anatomy and what Paul's assumptions would be when referring to the head. Yeah. And I think that that's where we're, we are safest. Look, uh, let's just go ahead. Quick, let's just kind of go back to Ephesians then and go okay. back to Ephesians 5. And uh, since that's kind of where, you know, this, I think, kind of also comes to a head, and this is what we're starting to study at Restoration Church mm-hmm. and where we're going in Ephesians and, and just trying to understand this, this, this idea of headship, right? Mm-hmm. And this, again, is the, is the, is the context of the, the passage that we are all familiar with, um, and, or at least many are, and to where we get a lot of our ideas of this idea of men and women in leadership or men and women, the roles of, of men and women, right? Okay. And so Ephesians 5, um, it, it kind of begins with, uh, you know, we'll start in verse 22. Okay. Wives. Submit to your own husbands. You can't start there. I can't start there. You cannot start there. That's not the beginning of the Greek sentence. (laughs) You know what? You're actually right. You're starting in the middle. I mean, you're starting in the sentence. No, you're right, actually. Let's just go back another verse, okay? Um, Because it's a continuation. That verse 21 is actually a continuation of the idea of being able to do things in the spirit. So... Uh, he talks about don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. And now in the Greek, it would be an ongoing sense speaking to one another with psalms and hymns mm-hmm. and so on, uh, giving thanks to God. Um, and then verse 21 would be submitting to one another yeah. out of reverence for Christ. And then verse 22 with the word submit is imported. It's not in the Greek. It's wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And here it says, for the, for the husband is the head of the wife, the kephale of the, as Christ is the kephale of the church, his body. You're, and you're, you're exactly right. Uh, the word submit yourselves as to the Lord as after husbands, right? But it, it looks like it says wives to your own husbands, submit yourselves wives as to the Lord. Wives to your own husbands, right. Yeah. And then in verse 25, continuing that thought if we could have put an ing wives loving your wife our husbands loving your wives verse 25 so this being filled with the spirit produces this kind of behavior and it begins with uh after after we've worshiped with psalms and hymns and after we've loved you know and done these things that god wants us to do um it continues on into the family, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now he decides to take the template of the Roman family, which includes slaves. Yeah. His, his job here isn't to tell us what a family should look like. It is to take the way f- a family looked. Yeah. And now change it from how it used to function. And in that culture, certainly men would have asserted their role 
what we call a role. They yeah. wouldn't think, they don't, didn't have this sociological concept of roles back then. It just was what it was. It was what it was. Yeah. The men behaved this way. And he's saying, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute here. Okay. Uh, you're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of you, fam- everybody in the family is going to get an assignment on how to make this happen. Yeah. All right. How's it going to happen for the wives? Well, they're going to treat their husbands. Um, they're going to submit to him as if they were submitting to the Lord. Same kind of instruction Paul gives elsewhere, where he, he tells the slaves to obey their masters as if they were the as if they were the Lord. Yeah. All right. You do it as unto the Lord. So obviously, if your master or your husband were to require you to do something that was against what the Lord wants for you, your obedience is to God. Yeah. Let them think it's for them, you know, the, the, the masters or, the, or whatever, but it's not. It's as unto the Lord. So you're going you're gonna to submit as unto the Lord. And the husband is the kephale of the wife. We've already seen that spelled out for us in the other passage. Um, as Christ is the head of the church, the kephale of the church. Notice he doesn't go on to say, uh, to illustrate kephale by saying, um, as is demonstrated by his lordship, but rather as is demonstrated here, um, as he's the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. And he's going to describe how a savior treats the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. I think they get the easy assignment because the church doesn't submit to Christ very much, very yeah. well. Um, if you look at church history, uh, they, if that's their standard, they just have to do it the way the church has done it. Uh, forget it, buddy. You're not going to get any kind of uh, authoritarian uh, boost out of that statement. Uh, but they're, they're to treat their husbands as if they were serving Christ. Mm. And then notice... Husbands, love your wives, loving your wives, just as Christ loved the church Church. and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or um, any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You know, the other day my wife was heading out to work and she had a big sales appointment with uh, she was going to have to represent her company in this sales meeting. And she looked at her vast array of shoes and she only found one pair that she could wear and they were scuffed up. And she was, she was like, I, I don't really want to wear these, but the only ones I really think I should wear. I said, honey, let me get my shoe polish, my, my shoe shine kit, and I'll shine it up for you. Oh, no, no, I'll do it myself. I'll do it. No, I will do it. It's, this is my job, I said to her. And I quoted her this passage. I said, it is my job to present you without blemish. Yeah. And there are blemishes all over these shoes. Yeah. So she put her foot up on the chair, mm. and I began to apply the polish and brush and so on. That's a Catholic. Yeah. That's my role as, as a husband. Yeah. And that would have shocked the traditionalist culture of the 1950s even, uh, or it would have shocked the Romans, the Roman especially, culture, especially, yeah, yeah, because yeah. it was the job, the wife's job to shine his shoes, 
uh, in in nineteen. If you were, you know, let's make room for Daddy or whatever it was called. Um, Father knows best, you know. Oh yeah. She brings him his slippers. She brings him yeah, his shoes. Yeah. Uh, that that's the traditionalist mindset. Yeah. That's not the tradition of Scripture or right. of Christ. Well, and you know, it's interesting. I think most uh, those who come from a complementarian background have actually. Uh, that was just a beautiful sermon you preached. So thank you. Okay. Uh, my work is done now for that week. Uh, <laughs> but when we like a complementarian, uh, a complementarian background would preach that same message. Okay. They preach the same sermon. Okay. Uh, there, there's no difference in what you just said. And actually, I think it's actually really helpful to find the meeting ground by going, listen, we're reading this the same way. Okay. Right? Okay. The husband is to come and to, and to sacrificially serve his wife just as Christ has sacrificially died for his church. Right? Okay. Um, and so I think nobody would really take issue with that unless you're on the extreme traditionalist side. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and that this is the good and right thing for us to be doing as men. The question is, is the subs- the ongoing subservient role of the of the wife, the woman uh, in church ministry, but also mm. even in the household and, um, and and how that continues to move on? Because, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go back, you know, simply to, you know, why, you know, husbands, yes, do that for your wives. That's a radical thought, but that's the loving thing to do. But we then we seem to kind of go back to verse 22. But listen, wives. Wives still submit your yeah, husbands, yeah, yeah. right? So here, here's here's where a lot of the confusion comes in, and I get this from complementarians. Um, they wives should submit. Wives should submit. Yes, that's what it says. Yeah. Egalitarianism. Egalitarianism isn't about less submission. It's about more submission. It's about verse twenty one mutual submission. Yeah. It's about the husband giving the same level, or even more. Back to the wife, because if, if, if Christ is our example, we've, we've got a much higher bar to meet than the church's example. And yeah. our role of submission and servitude to our wives, it's not that we serve her by being an authority or thinking or making decisions for her. It's that we imitate the servanthood of Christ. Uh, you know, I think that actually is a very helpful distinction um, and a reminder. Again, we've we've gone back there, but we've you know we we have said even just Jesus washing the the feet of the disciples in the upper room in John, um, right. you know, uh, John was at seventeen, but um, or actually I'm sorry, earlier than that even. Um, but I'm even remembering John fifteen mm. when he says. This is my commandment, love each other in the same way I've loved you. That's verse 12. And then verse 13, here it is, the linchpin. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's right. Um, For one another. Right. Right? There's no – and I think from that perspective, it's like that obliterates pretty much any sort of standard that we would have. Right? Yeah. Because Jesus is simply saying, lay down your life. Exactly. Die. Exactly. For this person. So lose, that, lose everything. Give it all away. Authority, your your roles, all things, die for the other person. And that tr- and he doesn't distinguish anywhere other than says for your friend for everyone. Yes. Right? Right. So here's the thing. You said a, a complimentarian would give the same sermon. But I wasn't just giving a sermon, I was explaining kefale. Yeah. I, Paul was explaining kefale. All right. And that's the difference from the complementarian and egalitarian, I'm looking at the context of where that word appears, yeah. and I'm seeing that those are the things that illustrate it. So 
to be a kafai, to be a head in the biblical sense, is not to rule over. It goes back to, again, Matthew 20, 25, and 26. Yeah. The Gentiles lord over each other and exercise authority over each other. It's not to be this way with you. Not so with you, he says. Yeah, yeah. So this is where kafale, if if we're being Christ-like about it, if we're being cruciform to it, to his to the way Jesus taught, then uh, we see that it's kind of a kind of a moot point what kafale means if it becomes imperative upon us as kafales to do the opposite of what tradition and culture think ahead should be. And that does seem to be a, a predominant theme of the gospel message, mm-hmm. right? It is the gospel message. Yeah, I mean, it, to love one another as you, as Christ loved us, how did he love us? He died on the cross. He rose again. He purchased our redemption. He paid the ransom for our souls. He made us pure and clean and presentable to the Father. And he does that continually. Yeah. Through the power of his Holy Spirit, to which he sends to us, exactly. which again is the very source of our life and this new humanity to which he is creating in us, even on this earth today, and ultimately to be revealed in the final day. Exactly. Right. So this is a statement I've made before. I probably made it to you, and I tend to shock people with it. But my belief is that when you have a complementarian view that says women are restricted in their roles from doing things like teaching and preaching to men or being a pastor or leader over a mixed congregation, you are opposing the gospel. Because the gospel is about all of us being redeemed and useful to God. And it is about all of us being able to proclaim the message like the women did on Easter morning. Uh, The apostles to the apostles Mm. were women. And uh, why would you tell someone to sit down and shut up? Yeah, wait a minute. So the apostles to the apostles, right? The apostles to the apostles. Yes. So the the word apostle means messenger. Yeah. One who was sent. One who was sent with a message or messenger. Yes. And who are the first to see the the, the risen Lord or the empty tomb were the women. And And they bring the message from the angel. Yeah. Right. Yep. To the male, to the men apostles. To right? the men. If we had, if they had been told, sit down and wait for the men to arrive, I wonder what part of the year we'd be celebrating Easter in. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> these guys were scared out of their pants. They were all hiding up in, a, you know, in corners of the rooms where they, where they hid. Yeah. And they had to be sought out by the women the brave ones who went and stood before the guards and said, who will move away the stone for us? And then they get there and find out it's already been done by the Messiah. Yeah. 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 I, there's so much here that um, it started, this kind of conversation starts to uncover. Um, but man, what a, what a great maybe place to end this conversation okay. for today. Um, especially just as we're recording this a few weeks ahead of Easter. Um mm-hmm. What a beautiful picture that is and empowering, I think, um, to women um, and those who follow Jesus and love him um, and want to honor him. And uh, also empowering, I think, to us as men um, to say, man, maybe 
maybe some of the inklings I've had or maybe some of the things that I've wrestled with before are um, even a challenge to us, uh, perhaps even to think maybe maybe I've gotten this off. Maybe I've been wrong on this. Um, you know, that's been my journey. And uh, sure. I don't expect anybody to be 100 percent convinced when they're finished listening to this. Um, I know that uh, I still continue to be on the journey and I, you know, the questions are still like, okay, now I got to unravel a lot of other things, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe we'll save that for an, another part to this at some point. But I think that's a, that's a beautiful place for us to end and to remember that um, and for us to kind of go back and to see that uh, we certainly see here in scripture as we start to kind of uncover more of this idea of, of headship is um, perhaps uh, we have not always seen it the way in which the Lord wants to see it or has seen it. And right. that is really our heart, isn't it? Our heart is we want to honor God, we want to worship him, and and we want to obey him. And we want to look in the scripture and read the scriptures as they speak, as they, as they read, you know, and, um, and as God has self-revealed himself to us in concert with others doing this theology and community idea and within the community of the Holy spirit who is speaking in and through us and says, let me reveal to you and share with you my heart and my desire for this world. Um, I, you know, I often wonder is, is in heaven, are, are all the men going to be walking around on, on level the platform next to, you know, in the temple Mount, you know what I mean? And the women are going to be sitting outside in the courts. <laughs> I mean, is that, well, this is where, where Ephesians says the, the wall of hostility has been broken down. Yeah. And we know the temple had its walls of hostility. Yeah. Uh, signs up saying, Gentiles weren't to go past this point or they would die. And another section saying, this is the court of the women. You stay in this place. And Jesus comes in and Paul says, that stuff's been blown apart. You know, we're all going to be unified under one head. Yeah. With him as our unifier and our, as our peace, those who were far have been brought near. Those who were Gentiles are now included in, the, in with Israel. And those who are male and female. Yeah, slave and free, all are one in Christ Jesus, so that through baptism we we are clothed with Christ Jesus, and every man and woman, slave and master, each of us is given sonship. Yes, sonship. Yeah, not son and daughtership. Yeah, but sonship. Yeah, first right, firstborn, first rights. And if if the woman has sonship, and if you have sonship. I can't tell you you can't do something if you're the son, if you are a son of the living God. <laughs> I can't tell her she can't do something. She has sonship just like you do. Yeah. And she has to be treated given all the rights of a son. Yeah. All the freedoms of a son. That's, uh, that's a whole different ballgame from the Old Testament. Mm. The, the, te- the covenant of circumcision and of law and of division and of uh, stones instead mm. of hearts. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to leave with one one little verse here. We've talked Please. about the prophecy thing. Yeah, it's not in Ephesians, but I've always thought it was a significant statement about what it means to live in the new covenant. It says, um, you know, Peter is is proclaiming the the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and he's explaining what's happened with the Holy Spirit coming upon everyone. This is Acts chapter Acts two. Acts chapter two, and we always talk about being a ch- Acts chapter two church, right? Yep. Well, he says uh, they're not they're not drunk as you might think. <laughs> Don't get started drinking till noon. I love this. But uh, then he says, no, this is what 
was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. This isn't from an inclusive language translation. This is the old translation. Yeah, and that's that's coming out of the Old Testament. And it's quoting the Old Old Testament, Testament. and it's looking forward to the new covenant. New covenant. And here, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. So... Let the women prophesy. Let them teach. Prophesying is of greater importance than teaching, according to Paul. Let them have unrestricted freedom to serve God in any capacity that a man can. And in the home, recognize your wife as your partner, not as your subordinate. Peter says, anyone who doesn't recognize their wife as a full partner in the grace of God will have his prayers hindered. Yeah. So in the family and in the church and in society, we have a lot of work to do as men, appreciating our wives and elevating them as Christ elevated his bride to that place beside us where they are full ministers and fully able to function within their giftedness whether it's leadership or anything else. Wow. Michael, <laughs> is that all you can say? Wow. I, I think I think we are going to have a wonderful opportunity uh, to, to really think about these ideas. What they have talked about is worth considering. And I think it's worth considering longer than we have time for now. Uh, or the space rather uh, to just to chop it up. Um, I think as we teased, we we would rather talk with Matt and and give a full podcast uh, as an opportunity to dialogue about these ideas. Yeah, so Matt's going to join us next week to talk about this podcast and uh, to probably whatever else is on his heart. Yep. But I'm excited that we can dive a little bit more deeply into this because um, it is. It, I mean, it's an important issue today. And uh, we need to think more deeply about it and uh, to see if there's a way that we can find some consensus um, so that we're just not so divisive. I mean, some of the language that's out there, as many are very well aware, are, is very accusatory that if you take one position, then you are not uh, submitting to the authority of Scripture. And if you take mm-hmm. another position, the same thing. And so, I mean, there's just nothing good that comes out of conversations like that. So anyway, all that to say, we're excited that Matt's going to join us. Yeah. To sort it all out. To sort it all out, right. That's what we're going to bring on a, a guest, because they come in as the authority that we will now listen to. And whatever Matt says goes. <laughs> Uh, but we're, we're very excited. Uh, we hope that that was a joy for you to listen to. Uh, and again, like, like promised, um, that your heart is stirred and that you are now looking into scripture more deeply and having this question of God, what, what did you have intended for your people? And, um, how do we grow towards that? So, uh, we're thankful that you joined us today on the Ethesiology podcast, Ethesiology and Community. Um, Please dialogue with us. Go over to Facebook, Physiology 
podcast. Look us up because we're certain you probably have opinions or feelings after listening to today's podcast. And we would love to get your thoughts on that. So go and post those thoughts. Let's at least begin the dialogue. And we can even bring in some of those thoughts as we talk with Matt in regards to those things. Uh, So for Michael and myself, thank you for joining us on the Ephesiology Podcast.